0: Welcome to the Film Comment podcast. I'm Devika Girish.
1: And I'm Clinton Crute. We're the editors of Film Comment. Today's podcast is spurred by something Devika wrote in her Film Comment dispatch from Cannes a few weeks ago. The undeniable thrills and pleasures of Top Gun Maverick are not entirely separable from the American exceptionalist fervor of its narrative or the military resources poured into its making. It isn't a good film but with bad politics. It's a good film in part because of its bad politics. For me, this was a great way into a conversation about Tom Cruise's world-dominating blockbuster.
0: Since then, Clint and I have been talking over all the questions the film raises about nationalistic movies, star power, the responsibilities of criticism and cinephilia. So this week, we invited two ideal interlocutors to join our conversation and help us pick apart the Top Gun phenomenon. Editor and critic Blair McClendon and Ed Halter, whose brilliant review of Top Gun Maverick appeared in four columns recently.
1: We hope you enjoyed the conversation.
0: Today, we are discussing a very solemn subject with two expert guests. Uh, The subject is Top Gun and Top Gun Maverick. I've been told these are the movies that will or maybe already have saved cinema. So we're here to talk about cinema's resurrection. And to do so, we have...
2: Ed Halter. uh I wrote about Top Gun for four columns Top Gun Maverick I should say but also the Top Guns in general
3: cool. and I'm Blair McClendon um my real expertise is being from San Diego and that a great deal of uh where Top Gun both really are shot is where I went to high school and I drove up the hill that he drives up a lot to go visit my then girlfriend so that's my real uh
0: Wow, uh, we didn't even know this, <laughs> and we just we just picked you because we just thought you would be. A I have a lot of, of opinions
3: <laughs> about locations in Top Guns, what they're really signifying. <laughs> it's we are very steeped in the kind
1: of like military militarism of San Diego. That, yeah, like, yeah, really strange place to grow up. I think it's a very strange place. Devika also wrote a little bit about Top Gun in her Can Dispatch for Film Comment, and um. I don't know do you want to talk do you want to start things off topic by like yeah i thought you, I thought you had a really interesting point that you made in your in your piece uh
0: as I was saying before we started recording um one of the reasons we wanted to do this and have this conversation was I had a bit of a meltdown actually um because I went to cannes and uh Top Gun Maverick showed at Cannes, and uh, I said this in my dispatch, so I'm I'm sort of repeating myself, but there was a lot of fanfare around the movie at Cannes. There was a, in front of the Grand Hotel, which is one of the hotels on the Crosset, there was this huge installation. Blair, if you were there, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. There's like a, a giant, like a uh, fighter pilot helmet, like the size of, I don't know, a tent or something, and these flashy billboards and Tom Cruise's visage and then for the film's actual premiere there were um fighter pilot uh, fighter planes or fighter jets stre- you know uh, streaking across the sky with like um fumes and you know of red blue and white and it was just very unsettling to see can not that I had like any great um fantasies of you know can being any bastion of radicalism anymore but it was still kind of unsettling to see like this much uh overt militaristic fanfare for the movie at Cannes. and then out of curiosity i on my way back from Cannes, i watched it in a theater in paris and already like this whole period of being at Cannes and Participating in this, like, very commercial, self-per- self-perpetuating hype machine of cinema, where there seem to be, I don't know, this underlying premise that movies are just worth something in themselves, no matter what they're about. Like, cinema... Cinema's existence is in and of itself so important that it doesn't matter what they say about the world. And something just irked me so much about watching Top Gun Maverick after that and hearing other people, including critics who I'd been to Cannes with or who I know in New York say things like this movie is going to save cinema, you know, and... um, I think cinema is worth saving. I work in this business. But you know, what is, you know, maybe more important than cinema? And is some some, some of cinema worth giving up for other things? So this is kind of what uh, I started thinking about around Top Gun. And then I also found that it was difficult to talk about the movie in these ways, because its politics are so obvious and so overt that it seemed almost passe to do so. You know, it seemed like, of course, like even its champions know that it's fascist. It's like, of course we know it's fascist, but you know, it looks like a real movie, man. I haven't seen a real movie in a theater in so long. A real American movie. It's
1: sort of like when uh, when Lenny Riefenstahl saves cinema.
0: <laughs> but see, you say that and people are like, uh, oh, come on, like that's so obvious you know or that's well, so but innocent. it
1: wasn't obvious at the time I mean there's a film comment cover a Lenny Riefenstahl cover like it's, there's an issue dedicated to her you know these things were not obvious at all
0: no but they were obvious right that people knew that she was a Nazi like I'm saying it was obvious that the politics were bad
1: yeah I think yeah okay
0: but the obviousness I'm talking about is more that it's Now, maybe then people didn't think it was so fraught or maybe that's actually simplistic. I think people were still wrestling with the separation of like the movie and the politics. But now there's also a large scale like adoption of politics, even by Hollywood, right? Like identity politics, even by Hollywood, where there's a kind of performance of good politics uh, or good representation, which also I felt like I saw at Cannes a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that also makes it then tricky, I think, to talk about these like material ways. or mm-hmm. um, and, I mean, and it also kind of brings up the questions like how important are movies, but also what is the impact of movies? Like e- by critiquing it, am I giving it too much importance to like, am I thinking that the movie is going to actually change the world? Uh, I'm going to stop now and let well, someone chime in. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think Ed was making a really good point before we were uh, before we started recording that kind of dovetailed with what you were talking about.
2: I think of this as kind of the Lenny Riefenstahl question in in many ways, is that, you know, uh, it's very difficult for film discussion nowadays to hold a nuance in its head. And the nuance of of, even as, as obvious a nuance is like, well, this is a really well made movie that's extremely entertaining and its politics are terrible. Uh, And that people can't seem to imagine that at the same time, which is strange. Uh, But, you know, people's brains have long been broken by Lenny Riefenstahl because of this. You know, they like, oh, you know, she's a she's an innovative, brilliant filmmaker. Oh, shit. She's a Nazi. Oh, but she's a woman. Oh, but, you know, uh, she's working in a marginalized uh, form of documentary. You know, it just never really ends with her. Um, And uh, I thought it was really funny that in the same year that they're celebrating uh top gun maverick kelly Reichert had that hilarious comment she made uh when she received her award where she i don't know if any of you saw it but she um you know there's, there's a translator translating her comments and so she she's like when i was a young girl uh you know my my parents gave me a, a book about a woman filmmaker and it, you know inspired me and everyone's like yes 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 yes." and then after the translator and her next line is that woman was Lenny Riefenstahl. <laughs> and then I was just like
1: silence. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, well, this, um, <laughs> you know. Dennis uh, recited this on a previous podcast. By the way, oh and yes, yes, yeah. It's it's. I think it's becoming a favorite
2: anecdote of the comic podcast. <laughs> but I think it's, it's so. Yeah.
0: yeah, it's so clever. Yeah,
2: it's so perfectly timed, and also, but I mean, uh, but in the context of Top Gun Maverick, it's of course interesting because there again, here is this film that is unabashedly pro-American propaganda. There's no question about it. Uh, And yet it's not, as you said, it's not worth commenting on, even so. And that that seems very strange. And the other thing I raised in my article that I think bears more discussion is that it's, you know, America is not the only one making big nationalist blockbusters anymore. The technological and financial resources necessary to make a blockbuster are now available to many nations, um, you know, uh, cinema industries. And so the fact that we're seeing China, India, other places, all I mean, maybe other places, I haven't ever looked into it, make these nationalist blockbusters uh, um, is an interesting thing in and of itself. And they're just fa- all following a, a political trend that's happening around the world that we all know about, which is the rise of a kind of populist nationalism that they are cashing in on uh, and in cashing in on it, helping spread and reinforce and all, and all that stuff. So uh, it's a bigger story than you know maybe the more simple story of top gun maverick is american propaganda oh yeah surprise but <laughs> it's not 1985 anymore and what it's doing and what kind of ecosystem it's 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 functioning in globally is is super interesting and worth talking about
0: this thing you were saying about holding nuance i think that was one of my frustrations um you know with the, with the conversations i was having which is that uh you know you can you can admit that the movie is good and pleasurable and that its politics are bad and that the, those two things are not separable you know it, it's to me it seems that part of why the movie is so thrilling and i did enjoy it like i i wouldn't deny enjoying it is because there's a level, you know, there are resources poured into it that, you know, make it sort of realistic and make it, you know, feel... There's a techno-spectacle aspect Mm. to it, right? Like, the techno-spectacle is very mesmerizing. And there are certain character narratives, like hero narratives that we've grown to, you know, over the years, we've grown accustomed to that also align really well with narratives of nationalism and narratives of saviorism, you know, these classical Hollywood narratives. So part of my frustration was, you know, it's it's not just nuance. It's also like being willing to examine why we like things, you know, and what, what actually gives us pleasure and being willing to say, like, I experience pleasure out of something that may not be good for the world, for example. And that doesn't make us bad people. But I think that's like, you know, a function of criticism is to actually parse what gives us pleasure. And the movie does give a lot of people pleasure that's like there's no denying that right
1: i i mean i cried i'm not gonna lie (laughs) well that that weird i'm an easy easy cry but that weird father-son thing and then at the end like which is then the you know it's like so on the surface and so canned but it's just that's, a, that's its whole point. The whole point is to mm-hmm. just kind of pull the heart, tug the heartstrings. But the weird thing, what's interesting is the movie kind of exists. It's not overtly fascist, and Ed was saying that an RRR character wraps himself in the Indian flag at one point. I mean, there is a lot of iconography in Top Gun for sure. There's a lot of American flags, but it's weird. It kind of, to me, exists in like the ambiance of bad politics. Like it's mm-hmm. just in the bat, like it's the air that it breathes more so than kind of characters saying that America is number one and will, and will defeat other countries. It's just sort of a given that the entire story is, is predicated on these ideas.
0: But it's g- predicated on the given of American exceptionalism. Yeah.
1: Which, <laughs> or, you know. which would also at the same time, like in both Top Gun 1 and Top Gun 2, the, one of the main drivers of the narrative is the fact that the fighter pilots, the fighter planes that they're using are not as good as the yeah. the enemy's new fighter planes are better. And that's so they're true. gonna. So yeah. these. So what matters is the American know how and kind of incredible skill of the pilots. That's superior. That's gonna be the mm. the edge mm-hmm. that they have. The technology itself is is not as important as like the pure heart of the of the fighter pilot.
3: What's been so surprising that they repeated to me and both of them was their unwillingness to name who the enemy is, even though it's like extremely clear who it is. Yeah,
1: in both both movies.
0: They name it for a second because uh, that struck me immediately while watching Top Gun Maverick. And I was like, okay, the enemy, the, the enemy always has helmets on, so you can't see like what, you know, what their complexion is like. But at one point, I think they said Iran. I don't it's think one so. one point. No,
1: def- I don't no? think so. I don't think so. No. No.
0: Did I like hallucinate that? I think
1: you
3: hallucinated
0: <laughs> it because- yeah,
1: what
3: they say it's is what's extremely <laughs> obvious. Okay,
0: yeah. okay.
3: Well, we know it's a rogue nation. We know they have, but do not yet have a nuclear power. Um, the actual tell, this is, I'm revealing my San Diego growing up in the, uh. the shadow of the Navy thing, is that they said they have leftover Tomcats and the only country that has Tomcats beside the US is Iran. Oh man, you have some deep- You do really do have the military knowledge. Unfortunately. Yeah. I used to go to the Navy air (laughs) show every year as a child. Uh, But yeah, so like, but that's what's like really fascinating to me in both of those is they put these like chest thumping, like, let's watch the boys go to town and defeat our enemies. And at the last second, both of them blink and won't just name the obvious enemy they're referring mm. to. I
1: mean, in the original, is it's the Soviet Union.
3: Bit, yeah, but and they're, but in the original goes closer because, you well, one, it's the MiGs, and I'm pretty sure at the tail end of one of them, you sort of see the star and you're like, okay, they're doing a strange thing in this one because they can't name Iran, which also lets them say they have these fancy jet planes that Iran doesn't have, uh, but the Russians have. So it's, it, but it's this weird thing where it's like they walk right up to the line. And that, that's why I sort of agree with it's just the ambiance of American exceptionalism yeah. because they can't even name who they're talking. I
1: about. think they don't even care. Like it could, they like, yeah, like it seems that the filmmakers really don't care, like what country it is. They just need something to, like, yeah, for the fighter pilots to go do. That's my, that was my, and that's but, like
0: maybe in some ways that's like a cop out or that's, you know, trying to avoid like any sort of uh, specific. geopolitical or representational critique but it also does i I mean my point is american exceptionalism is ambiance i mean Mm -hmm. it is Mm -hmm. ambiance you know Mm -hmm. it is this idea that like it could be anyone on the other side of that helmet and the story fits
1: and the arbitrary nature of the enemy is also part of the is also kind of what's you know just bizarre about the movie like There's a point at which Tom Cruise's character says, "You know, I don't want Rooster to die. Like, I don't want him to die for this. I'm going to take his place." And I was like, "You could both just not die. You could just leave and not do this mission. You don't have to be in the military. Like, you can walk. You can walk away because this mission seems totally not necessary for the world. Like, or like anybody, except for maybe you know interests in the region or allies in the region."
2: Well, it's necessary for the military. exist. They, you know, uh, they need to have their targets. I mean, what I think is interesting is is this kind of the arbitrary nature of the enemy is actually really a deep part, I think, of American military ideology, which Mm -hmm. is that the military has to imagine itself as non-political. Oh, we're Mm. just a tool. It's the administration at a given time that is actually doing the politics, despite the fact that obviously by going into countries, bombing and invading them and engaging a war, you are doing politics in an extremely real way. (laughs) But but, you know, it is part of our national identity of this idea, for better or worse, to be honest. I'm not sure if I want a, a military that says it's doing politics either. I don't know what's worse. But but the fact is, it's a bit ridiculous when you get down to it. And I think that the ridiculousness of trying to hide the enemy, I mean, is the enemy Springfield from The Simpsons? That's what I kept thinking. It was a kind of similar thing where they're <laughs> throwing they're throwing so many different clues in that they don't actually necessarily add up, you know? It's also hedging their bet because honestly, who the fuck knows who will be at war with by the time this movie comes out. It was made like four or five years ago at this point, you know, yeah. or more. Yeah, that's true. You know, so they were probably hedging their bets and saying, well, we don't really know. But they probably were so happy that there were pine trees in the shots, though, because they were like, maybe it's Ukraine. You know, they like, like they're like, yes, it's plausible that maybe this is Eastern Europe. On the other hand, I've also seen Israeli films where they do the same thing with the Palestinians. They will not say or, or actually they don't even say it's the Palestinians. They're just it's the enemy, which from an Israeli perspective, obviously could be lots of different people. Mm-hmm. No, right. But it doesn't really matter. They just have the idea that there is always an enemy. And I think right. that. In this American film, yeah, they're having the same idea. There'll always be someone working a bomb.
1: Well, do you think that this is a different, uh, like t- these two Top Gun movies? I mean, there were a lot of movies in the eighties where they that named the enemy, Red Dawn, and you know, movies that were just explicitly kind of uh, the enemy was the Soviet Union and and communism. So why why in the why do you think the eighties version also kind of tried to
3: avoid the political overtones? I think I would say it's sort of a bit because the and this is easy because they, the movies repeat each other so, so neatly, uh, because what it's really, it feels like what it's really invested in is an internal American problem that it seems to be pointing to between like, which is funny that this, this are separated by 30 years, which you think would sort of harden the critique, but between this sort of ossified bureaucracy that can't really see the thing, and you know, I mean, this, I feel like, there's just so many American movies that are about this, which is like the maverick uh, who comes in and is the straight shooter and gets things done. It's the loose cannon story, you know? Uh, And that's who it's like really aimed at. And that, I think, again, to just get back to the, like, the American exceptionalism is taken for granted thing. It's like, America will win no matter what. The only thing that can sap its strength is the failure of certain Americans to see how this actually needs to go down. Uh, and so I think part of it is just that like you can make a nationalism that's projecting outwards which Red Dawn is very clear like that's the problem Um, or you can make one that's like I am trying to find the right kinds of Americans and you're actually projecting this as an inward thing and I think both top guns are actually more concerned with what isn't working to them in America and who is the ideal American which is like this really great Maverick, you know, and I, Ed, you think like the f- moment I stopped because I had the same thought too, was that one of the strangest things was how in that first one, a part of the argument for and legitimacy of like Tom Cruise as this loose cannon straight shooter is that he's really seductive. He walks into that bathroom and you're like, he can get her. And that's how I know that he's better. And in this one, it's so strange because it's, I mean, some of this is bringing Tom Cruise's actual persona in, but he doesn't quite have that legitimacy anymore, and so it's like him and Jennifer Connelly, and they have to invent a weird backstory that we keep referring to that I don't know anything about.
1: And
0: they never kiss. I I just like it's so disturbing <laughs> the like sex scene.
1: We I do want to talk about that weird yeah, the, the sex and the you know the sexuality in the first one too is like super intense, like in your face homoeroticism and just like. Almost deliberately comical, or definitely deliberately comical.
3: Yeah. <laughs> it goes past almost. And then, I,
1: and and uh, the new the new one is like they've extracted or like surgically removed any kind of sexual <laughs> mm-hmm. overtones or undertones from the film with any, with amazing precision. Even the sex scene, like you're, there's no kiss. They there's just like, kiss. and I think Ed, you wrote about this, right? Like they just wake up, kind of. Josh and Tom Cruise is like lecturing her about the military or something. <laughs>
0: They like push each other onto the bed, like fully clothed, and then cut to, you know. It's just yeah and I
1: think there's like one scene where he like watches her go into the house and she's it's supposed to be like he's like she's looking good. But it's just so weirdly just inert. The whole the filmmaking is just like gesturing at something that might be sexy.
2: Well, it might be trying to imagine what is the straight male imagination of romance, which is just like It's absolutely idiotic, just completely just like I did it. I did it. I got laid. You know, it's like it's like there's no emotion, no anything. Yeah. I mean, I actually think you know. Actually, to be honest, I'm up. Obs- I've been obsessed with Top Gun since I was a kid, and it really the the gateway drug was the homoeroticism for me, hands down. There's no question about that because it was always so perplexing of why it was there. Like, what is it doing? Well,
1: I think there's a line early on, right, where somebody's like, "Whoa, I got a boner from that." Like, a plane flies. I, I have a heart. Oh, yeah, yeah I'm very hard. Oh, yeah, right, right.
2: This is giving me a hard on more than that. He leaves over and whispers that into his wingman's ear you know like it's a little too much but you know what actually what, you know I read um a biography of Don Simpson uh many years ago that actually proposes a theory of why it's like that which is that Simpson and Bruckheimer had had a hit with Flashdance and it was a surprise hit and they had to kind of in their minds as producers think well why was this a hit and their theory was that Flash dance was a hit because both men and women went to see it. It doubled the audience because it had a, a story of female empowerment for the women and for the men, it had sexy women, right? And so they literally were like, basically like, well, let's reverse it, right? And so they were literally brought in ads by Cal- Bruce Weber ads for Calvin Klein and were like, make these men sexy, not realizing that it's a weird kind of short circuit of like what a man imagines a woman to be sexy you know, it's just like not real, it, you end up being a gay man basically. Like you end up, you end up envisioning a gay man's sexuality by default because you can't really imagine.
1: You have like sweaty beefcakes in like a in a in a locker room with steam and like lots of towels. There's a lot of that.
2: Yeah, it's a male imagination of sexuality which is highly visual, highly objectifying, highly you know just a kind of raw interest in the the body. You know. And I'm not, you know, I'm not a woman, uh, but I I kind of don't. Having seen films made for women that are successful, that's not usually the, the hyper focus of it.
0: I will say um, this, I because I saw Top Gun Maverick first and then I went back and watched Top Gun. I'd never seen it. And, you know, there was all this talk about the volleyball scene, the famous volleyball scene. And OK, I will say when I watched Top Gun. I was immediately sort of reminded of like how charismatic and handsome Tom Cruise was. But in the 80s, I mean, you know, even watching it now, you're just like hit by his like screen presence. You know, he's uh, very cute and like he's so obnoxious in the movie, but you kind of just want to go along with it because of just how cute and charismatic he is. But I will say the volleyball scene, I was like were they really repressed back in the 80s? Like, this was doing it for them? (laughs) You know, you could just watch, like, any music video or ad, I'm sure, even in the 80s, that was, you know, more than this. And I wonder if that it, I really, I mean, is it because it was this kind of movie? Like, this kind of movie where that was surprising? Or if it was, like, the Hollywood blockbuster where it was, you know, it stood out? I'm not sure. Maybe, Or was it just that? Tom Cruise and Val Kilmer are hot. You know, maybe that's what it comes down to. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast.
3: I will say that there is the, I can't answer to the, was it doing it for them in the eighties? I mean, I suppose, yes, is the answer. Uh, But something that like, I really was struck by, again, this is easy because they just repeated the movie, uh, is that when they do the equivalent scene here of the football um, on the beach, is that they set it at the exact moment when the sun is constantly silhouetting them so you can't actually see their bodies. Which like I just kept thinking at the end of it about that and the not sex scene, and that I was like, you guys successfully repeated it, but like you were saying earlier, <laughs> like you surgically removed the actual moment at which the sex pops up, and so it's like, and it's it's interesting too because it's like, oh, you did as football. It's like this isn't just going to be here's topless men; they're going to be like wrestling each other to the ground, and it just moves all the way around it somehow. It's like cut in a way where you just see like kind of things but rustle
1: into each other but you can't tell like what they are and you don't actually see the bodies yeah
3: yeah it's like it's very successfully crafted for how you would cut it if like the television sensor told you that's a little much and then you'd go back in and recut it a little bit and like don't worry we have the silhouette shots and so it's like yes i think probably there was some more repression right? like gloss of history feels more repressed in the 80s uh but this one, it's stunning how it sort of has like compromised even on that.
1: I think it's calculated though. I think they're just, it's extremely like this, this one just struck me as like everything, every detail of Top Gun Maverick is very carefully planned and very, they've, they've read all, they've read all the interpretations of top the original Top Gun that say it's homoerotic. They've read all the, you know, whatever. Like,
0: is it made to be exportable? Not, because you, your question, and that's something, you know I was thinking about because I read somewhere i i'm the details are not clear uh in my mind, but I think some of Maverick's badges were changed, and there was some reference to Taiwan that was removed that people assume is so that the movie would be you know saleable in China, so it also makes me wonder because Ed, your point about this movie is not just about American exceptionalism it's about competing exceptionalisms in the world now in among movie industries and so I wonder if, uh, you know, the movie is made for a world market where there are different kinds of censorship rules and uh, different levels of palatability f- with audiences with respect to homoeroticism or plain old eroticism. And also, uh, you know, uh, exportable ac- across platforms, you know, um, like streaming services or tv deals and i don't know in various countries
2: sure i'm
1: sure all these things are taken into consideration
2: right well i i think absolutely and i but i also think that the reason why it does that so uh, so completely is is because it's a very producer driven movie as the original film was and but in this case the producer is tom cruise and in this case he's producing the movie around him and he's also helping dictate his own legacy. So for me, I mean, for me, one of the most interesting things is that when you went to the press screening for this film, uh, which they actually did, which they don't do for every film, that, as many people don't, might not know, that the, you often don't even get a press screening for a film, right? But they, de- they did a press screening for this. At the press screening, on the email, they sent a uh, press kit that was like 80 pages long. Of interviews with Tom Cruise, and it is really it is written like a dictator's biography. It is so incredible how central Tom Cruise's voice is to the creative decisions being made in the film. Um, it's remarkable, and so I think that there's also this sense where you know the movie is about America, the movie is about Hollywood, but the, and the movie is really about Tom Cruise, like for re- in a very big way. But also not just Tom Cruise, the star, which as uh, Devika said, you know, he has this, lo- I mean, you can't deny that his compelling nature is an icon, but also him as a Hollywood figure, as a producer, because he has been so successful at producing his own career, basically, in the la- in the 21st century. I believe he has barely been in a film that he did not himself produce. And so uh, that control of his own image is something that I, w- I felt was never, you one never stops uh, thinking about it, watching uh, Top Gun. It is all about Tom Cruise, Ma- you know
1: Tom Cruise Maverick. No. I, I said actually first. <laughs> I I'm gonna dissent, and I think somebody earlier said that like he's so uh, charismatic in the in the first one, and this one he's he's less so, or you can tell that he's kind of aged. I found him like much more compelling as an actor in this in Top Gun Maverick, and the original. I think it's such a weird abstract movie of like streaks of pink and blue, and the care and the dialogue is really like simple and direct in a way that. I don't know i he's but I do want to also say that when i was uh when I went to see this at the theater top Gun Maverick there was a uh like a little introduction by Tom Cruise. he appears on the screen before the movie starts and he's sitting there in a flight jacket and he says like I just want to thank all the people who worked on this movie. The theater is the best place he's like he's promoting cinema but he's kind of patting himself on the back and it just sort of he he appears as tom cruise so the first thing you see here is just like him it's going to be about yeah i mean you you get that it's going to be about him
3: i think that's sort of the like the only true if one is is being faithful to the top gun ethos uh the real confusing contradiction to me of top gun maverick is that it's like how on earth is a top gun movie about the teacher when all of top gun is about I hate teachers, teachers should stop talking to me. Uh, and it's, it's fascinating how they, because it is so tied to Tom Cruise and because he is so compelling and you are going to go with him over basically anybody else in the movie, that you're just like, oh yeah, he is still the rebel. And I was like, in no way are you functionally the rebel here. You know, the one who, I, his name, Glenn Powell, I think, is mm-hmm. the one who is Tom Cruise in this movie. Yeah. Oh, like an like
1: asshole guy,
3: right? Yeah. 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 I mean, he's playing not the same exact player. role. Yeah. Yeah, he's name? not a team player. Hangman. He's cocky. Hangman. Hangman. Like, everyone knows he is better than everybody, even though it's really annoying. Like, they have given him the runway. And yet, because of Tom Cruise, Cruise's like, it's fine that it's actually about Cruise. Because that, to me, I kept, like, watching the whole movie, being like, Glenn Powell is in such a funny position here, where if you just pegged like who is the heir, which is funny that it's actually Miles Teller's character, but who is the heir to Tom Cruise's role in Top Gun? It's him. And then at the last second, they sort of do that shuffle to both sideline him and bring him back in.
0: I mean, I'm kind of curious about this, um, Clint. I didn't see in in Paris this preview with (laughs) Tom Cruise talking Ah. to his people, (laughs) to his plebs. but this idea, you know, that he's speaking to the importance of the theatrical experience and cinema. Mm-hmm. I do, I do want to talk about that a little bit because
1: <laughs> that's been a big part of the marketing campaign, right? Like, yeah, yeah, getting people so.
3: back into theaters.
0: Yeah, and
3: and there were ads about that, like last year and the year before that, when they were delaying it, where he was sort of and he was in his white jacket then too, and he was kind of like, "Don't worry, guys, we're going to do it." Right. It's weird how he's like presents himself as if
1: he's actually a pilot.
2: he did fly the planes he did actually they make make really pains to tell you this in the press notes he it's one of the things i'm most aware about yeah yeah i'm very aware of the fact that he flew the plane yeah so they had he flew
1: these fighter jets up there like going very fast and like did tricks in them and stuff
2: yeah yeah good for him
1: I mean, that's pretty that this guy is a real. Yeah, real, I mean, real American here.
2: <laughs> <laughs> all for cinema. No <laughs> one is denying the commitment of Tom Cruise to being Tom Cruise. Yeah. It is it absolutely. Is, he has the deepest commitment to being the best Tom Cruise he can be. And I think we have to just admire that. At a certain, I'm level. not
3: committed to anything like he's
1: committed. Exactly. To no,
2: himself. none few of us are.
3: I think
1: we no. just have to the, uh, the critics just need to pipe down because <laughs> we're not getting in the fighter jets are we i mean I, i'm not i don't know i'm not going to speak for you guys but
0: no. I, you know it is this like this technical mastery is so awe-inspiring you know so then that that is what um you know i think it makes it really challenging the nuance aspect of it because how is it possible to talk about the technical mastery like uh outside of the movie's ideological failings? I mean, it is possible, but is it is it useful, I guess, is my question.
2: I mean, I often think with with blockbusters, what is, it's not so, I mean, the technical mastery of the blockbuster is a kind of meta-mastery, meaning that anyone can throw money at, a, let's say, a Marvel piece of shit and have really good special effects, really good this and that, but being able to orchestrate it and make it into a coherent film that actually is 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 meaningful and, 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 and co- and make sense. And like, that is really hard. And I feel like well,
0: that is what I mean by mastery though, to clarify. You exactly. Know? Yeah.
2: And it's, it's a rare, it makes it rare. And so as a rare thing, uh, it's great. This is why Spielberg, I mean, to me right. uh, is this is the nature of Spielberg. He can pull off what no one else can pull off.
3: I do think there's something about the environment it's being released into, um, which is that I, you know, I, well, I didn't cry in the movie. Uh, I did catch myself at a certain point just during the final dog fight, dog fight, uh, you know, doing the like very obvious bodily thing of like anytime something is coming close being like, Oh no, you got to duck that way. Um, which I think, you know, compared to like basically the other blockbusters being Marvel and the, I, I sort of subsumed star Wars into Marvel now, which isn't fair, um, but it's the same company. So uh which something that's like been quite shocking to me about those is the degree to which they're not capable of that kind of craft. And that quite frequently when the big scene comes up, I'm like, nothing happens to my body. It doesn't actually ask me to react in that way. Um, And so I do think that's part of what's really hard in thinking against Tom Cruise's claim to be saving cinema um, is that he is as producer of this, uh committed to it used to be the big, bad thing in a way that even now it's like, well, the new big, bad thing doesn't even bother to make me lean to the left when the jet moves to the left. Um, and so I think it's it is possible to talk about it. I think it's it's just difficult because people are quite desperate for somebody who can manage capital, like Spielberg can manage capital. I mean that's sort of what has been. I mean, there's many other things that are upsetting to me about the Marvel movies and stuff, but what's hard at the end of them is that I am often like, you guys didn't even manage the capital," and that's kind of what I asked you to do here. Um, and they brought that back, which like now you're into a fight that you didn't have to have a little while ago because it was like, well, that's always what the annoying jingoistic thing was doing. Uh,
0: I guess to me, it seems like, but I I, I probably sound, I don't know, um, I to me it seems like this this is the case where we're tested right like this yeah. is the case where we have to say this movie has a level of craft that we're not getting anywhere else but we must still turn it away you know and this is where I what I mean is like this is where we must like make our decisions about cinema like what what we want in cinema and so it seems like this important test case to me, which maybe I sound mm-hmm. a little like purist and, you know. Well,
1: this is where I think it'd be interesting to talk a little bit about RRR and um, like the Chinese blockbuster that you mentioned. I think that like how those fit into that as well. Mm-hmm. Like, are they doing the same thing that that Top Gun does? Are they as thrilling? And as, is, that, is that mastery as evident in those films? Or is, that, is this the only mode in which this kind of mastery can be displayed, I guess? Is,
2: I mean, it's interesting to put it that way, because I think RR very much is about a technical mastery. It's showing off its technical expertise to an nth degree. And also what it does with CGI is, is very its own thing. Like, it's not it's not the same choices that a Hollywood movie would make and how it's using CGI. And it does really remarkable things with it. So I think in some ways, yes. Um, I mean, I also think that it gets back into thinking of, into a movie, and this is very marvel uh, generation logic, that going to a movie is like upvoting it, right? Uh, the only thing that you do is you're you're upvoting the movie and saying, I'm on team Marvel. Um, and I think it's very interesting, I mean, not to get away from RR for a second, but I do want to mention, very interestingly, I did see a statistic that Top Gun Maverick is unusual in that most of the box office is from people over 35, and that happens extremely rarely nowadays. It is literally your dad's favorite movie this summer, you know? And that's, that is probably a fluke. I mean, I don't know if Hollywood is committed to making movies for the over 35 set. Uh, maybe they will be if they see it makes money. But what I mean is, uh, is this really about this saving Hollywood or is it more like a certain generation's idea of Hollywood being saved? Uh, because, I mean, people are going to Marvel movies. They're, they're not you and me, uh, and they are a bunch younger in general, but they're going. So who is saving Hollywood here? You know, who is actually doing that? And um, yeah, who's Hollywood are we saving? There
1: was one other person at this two o'clock matinee that I, for Maverick that I saw. Just literally me and one other person. who came Also late. a dad? Uh, no, it was a young woman, surprisingly. She, probably also a critic. See,
0: Ed, you shouldn't make generaliz- <laughs> essentialist generalizations, okay? It was, Ed is I, not making this. This is
1: the data <laughs> is speaking.
0: No, I'm saying because he said it's your dad's favorite movie. There was a woman.
2: (laughs) Uh, I think also just to go with RRR, I think it's also interesting because RRR is playing another role, which is that every so often one Bollywood film or one Indian big budget film will break through to the uh even bigger audience than they usually get uh to the western audience that usually doesn't pay attention and i think it's interesting that this time it's rr which as we've all been talking about is also i don't know the nationalism i think is it's not i mean it's nothing compared to top gun let's well be it's honest.
0: it's it's a little different i think it's worth yeah. kind of mentioning this that and it also kind of loops back to our idea of american exceptionalism as ambiance. that's not how it works for like you know like uh countries that were once colonized, for instance, yes. so or recently colonized. So RRR is, this, is like an anti-colonial story in the sense that it's set during the British Raj and it's about, you know, two men teaming up to, you know, against uh, the British colonizer. And so, you know, this kind of nationalism always has a named enemy, right? Like, because that's the enemy against whom the nation is even defined. And... It's the kind of enemy that no one can ever like morally, uh, you know, champion or this is a fight no one will morally object to, right? This is a war. I mean, it's not a war in RRR, but, you know, this is a kind of bloody battle, like a battle to decolonize oneself that feels morally simple. But that is something that has been, I mean, this has happened since the night, like, you know, 1960s, 1950s, 1960s, like that has been appropriated and mobilized by the nation states that arose after decolonization, you know, and that's a big problem in India for sure. That um this narrative of like, you know, we we have to define our establish our culture against the West, against the colonizer, you know, and um this has been um yeah, just used in order to entrench a kind of toxic nationalism. And the problem with RRR is that the vision of pan India, like pan Indian identity that it presents, is what is, you know, maybe fascistic. Not just that it is about the nation, but the vision of pan Indian solidarity favors, you know, one particular identity and religion um, over another. So I think it's, I, I just think that it's interesting and i'm i'm i'd be i haven't seen Wolf Warrior, but I'd be interesting to like figure out like what kind of nationalism is being peddled there because China has a different context it's you know it is actually competing with America in many ways right now. It is the unnamed fear of many superpowers like China the rise of China, so I'd be very curious um what its nationalism looks like, but they're like you know it it just these 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 give their own forms these give rise to their own forms that's what's interesting to me so in India it is like this underdog narrative right that's the nationalist narrative is the underdog narrative Um, and it plays into also the movies marketing you know it's like oh this movie from India that's now showing in all these theaters and it's a big budget movie but it's not as big a budget a movie as like a hollywood movie of its scale so the narrative is that this movie from india came in its dominating western screens and um and it with the hollywood blockbuster i think the narrative that that kind of exceptionalism gives rise to is like we were saying this ambient this ambient enemy the problem is internal you know what blair you were you were outlining
3: well what's interesting there that you see in both top guns and i think you see frequently in american narratives is that America has the problem that it hasn't been an underdog in a very long time. And it is constantly in search of a way to position itself as the underdog. And I mean, yeah, that, they repeated twice that somehow America can't do this unless it happens to have some innate thing that will make them just better because Tom Cruise is just better than Iranian Tom Cruise. And that's how you that's how you get to the other side, which I mean, you know, the whole thing that's sitting there throughout the whole movie is that they begin by being like, we have a plane that'll go Mach ten. We have drones, and we have to fight somebody who's bigger than us. And you're like, they're not bigger. What's what's going on?
1: But they have these fifth generation fighters. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're the fifth generation player.
0: And but that makes me think that they are gesturing towards like the fear of China, the t- fear of yeah, the te- yeah. techno superpower that will overtake America, and the fear right? of the
1: Soviet Union, like those you know the arms race. I mean, you always have to keep getting better equipment, or else mm-hmm. you know these
3: small. You know, Iranian states will
1: somehow well, I take think, over. This this
3: gets back to the like the thing you're describing, which is that the great difficulty of America is that it it presents itself as anti-colonial, even though it is the settler colony. So there is no language that any post-colonial state would use that the American state does not also use, because it thinks it did throw off the
2: shackles. Well, we are in that weird position where we are a post, literally a post colonial yeah. state. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think the most interesting thing is to in RRR is the absolute evilness of the British in it is really bracing because it does make you realize how much Western movies, even when it's something like Gandhi or something like we think we are telling the story. of uh, the you know, we still hold back, you know what I mean? And there is no holding back to how evil the British are in this. They are pure evil the way that Nazis are in uh, World War Two films. You know, it's absolute. I also think it's interesting, though, that both of them end up being weird mirrors of the film industries because Top Gun is all about the practical effects and it's all about production and access to massive military uh, equipment. And what's interesting about RR is it really is the celebration of post-production skill, you know, and so you get these incredibly imaginative uses of CGI. And one of the things that is when you see the movie at first, you're like, what? There's an opening title card that's like all of the animals in this film were made with CGI. And at first you're like, "Okay, all right. Well, but then you realize it's, you know, it's because there is insane battles with tigers and, you know, uh, 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 tons of wildlife running around. Uh, uh, being used. So it is a, it is in some ways very beautiful, uh, 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 um, you know, show showing off of technical skill, as we were saying, which Top Gun also is, but in this case specific to the industry there.
3: Well, I think that that does kind of get back to the, the who's Hollywood thing you were saying, which is the, like, that is the thing that Hollywood, the old Hollywood, the one that people, that Tom Cruise is saving, uh, is that like its capital, the thing it capital, its capital always gave it access to was the practical, you know, it's like, if you wanted a dress, you just bought the best dressmaker in the world and said, make us a dress. And like, that's always what Hollywood promised you was, if there is any practical thing that we can put on the screen, we have the access to do it. And that's what's, I mean, that's what's interesting about the elision I think that that Cruz and Top Gun are doing between like saving cinema and saving Hollywood is Hollywood's not doing that badly. Like there's a lot of other American cinema that's doing pretty poorly, but Hollywood's doing fine. And it's it's just it's a it's a very it's it's interesting to me sort of critically how that gets taken up because he is really saving something that's okay. It's not hurting in any real way.
0: There is that narrative of threat.
3: Americans do like to feel threatened. (laughs) Yeah
0: Yeah, and that's why there's like this meta-narrative. Like we keep, you know, talk talking about the movie, it lends itself very easily to talking about like how the marketing of the movie. And uh, of course, I think even though the movie was made a while ago, as you said, Ed, there are like legitimate fears around like, um, you know, because of the pandemic around the theatrical experience that clearly it's um, sort of leaning into to fortify that that narrative.
1: I like Tom Cruise a lot. But, but he's a, he's like a star who I can't quite figure out why he, I find him compelling. Like he seems on, on, when I think about it, to kind he's always kind of evading me. Like I'm trying to like categorize him or see like what is going on inside of him. And he just seems like vacant or just, uh, I don't really know the characters. Characters are all very similar and smarmy and kind of obnoxious. But then I, when I see him on screen, I'm just like immediately kind of
3: captivated and charmed. I just that's like, that's what a star was for a long time. You know, that's like Tom Cruise knows how to be looked at.
1: But he's not like Jimmy Stewart or like, uh, you know, Robert Mitchum or something. This is going to upset people, but. <laughs> or even, or even
3: Tom Hanks, who's, you know. Ooh, I don't think well... he's totally dissimilar from Tom
2: Hanks.
0: Yeah, I don't think so either.
3: Well, wait till you see Elvis.
2: You're right. <laughs> Cruise isn't going there. I think that Tom Cruise is really most comparable to Humphrey Bogart.
1: Yes. You know, uh, in
2: that, you know, Humphrey Bogart, not an incredible range, but always delivered Humphrey Bogart. And also, Humphrey Bogart, I, you know, he was really a touchstone of American masculinity and really taught a generation of how to be a man. I had this realization when, you know, my grandfather was the great generation was fought in World War II. And after he died, I realized, holy shit, the whole time he acted like Humphrey Bogart. Like there was something about Humphrey Bogart that just infected a whole generation's idea of what masculinity was. And I think Tom Cruise has done that for Generation X and maybe a little later. Uh, What is masculinity? It is evasive. It's also cocky. It's ambitious. And it's pretty. You know, it's like uh, it's kind of a pop and jay. And so I think that. I Tom think you Cruise, mentioned that, right, in your, in your article when you got developing into Metro. Yeah, I think Tom Cruise comes to define what it is to be a man, what, to, what it is to be masculine uh, and for a certain generation. I mean, I remember I had a boyfriend in the early 90s who dressed exactly like Tom Cruise all the time. And it is, people do not remember that that, there was a, in the same way that Ryan Gosling defined a kind of male fashion for, I think, a certain millennial generation, uh, Tom Cruise absolutely really? defined... Oh, you don't think so? Unfortunately, I agree.
0: There I was did like... grow up here, so maybe. OK, <laughs> oh, there, there,
2: was, there was a, was definitely there was a point after Drive when every single young man had his haircut and was wearing his clothes. And like he that was...
1: jacket or like a shiny and jacket. And the jacket, yes.
2: And mm-hmm. after Top Gun, this happened with Tom Cruise as well. Like he several fashion trends happened because of Top Gun. You know, the bomber jacket, the, the white T-shirt with the bomber jacket you know, the, the aviator glasses. Yeah, it all came together as a, as a kind of package and it became, a, I think, a real strong image of, of masculinity for that for a very long time. And so I think the fact that in the film, Cruz is struggling with his aging and coming to terms with it, and I think also not coming to terms with it, which is what my, you know, I think the film is, if, there's, if, there's, if the film has any weakness, it's that it doesn't quite know what to say about him aging. It's it's un it's unclear and perhaps confused about what it is to be a, a, a man of that age. He's what um, sixty, I think, and he's pushing sixty.
1: And yeah, I think he's he... the only pilot who doesn't black out when there's they have yeah. to do this like difficult maneuver. And yes. so, like a sixty year old man not being the only one who doesn't black out is kind of
0: stretches. I mean, that's like literally as old place. as my dad, and it is so. Yeah, I mean, it's um. I, the movie does well, you know. The movie kind of has this, I guess, semblance of a narrative around that by making him the teacher and the mentor. But in terms of aging, it only—the it, only thing the movie does is like now he is the dad. He's no longer the son. He's the dad, but actually, his capabilities don't change. Yeah, uh, he's still the best of all mm-hmm. of them. It's yeah. He
1: still has to save this the his son character. Yeah, I, mean, I just well, kept assuming like, the movie
3: yeah. was headed towards the searchers and they were like and eventually we'll say he has to walk away now because his era has passed and I, I think you're just sort of exactly right like it gets up to the it walks right up to that line but Cruise can't do it but it's Tom Cruise's project because, he can't yeah. do it
0: because <laughs> Tom Cruise is America you know <laughs>
3: And Americans and, don't give up.
0: America, yeah, America will usher in the new powers, but it will never stop being the number one mm-hmm. power. <laughs> I don't know if that's yeah.
2: No, it's true. It, no, it's true. It's about how it, it can't move on. Like, it's it, uh, he's someone that can't move on. I mean, I think that contradiction is, is similar to, you know, certain kinds of rom-coms and the fantasies they give of women's life. This is a fantasy of a man's life where he never has to grow up, and yet he also is able to achieve like, you know, success and uh, a standing in the world without ever giving up being a young man who's the maverick.
1: And never never getting promoted to admiral or becoming yes. a part yeah. of the bureaucracy. Yeah. He's never, yeah. he never, never becoming becomes...
2: part, yes. He's right. always the outsider,
3: yeah. Right. So just like gets to be a dad without having to raise a kid. Like, he gets everything.
2: Yes. <laughs> he gets it all, yeah, yeah. And he,
0: he gets like a new woman with like a completely fabricated backstory. I mean, why? Yeah. I, that was uh, just... again.
2: He's actually living the the life of a gay man. This is uh. this is the thing. You know, when when you imagine the fantasy of every straight man's life, it is actually the life of a gay man, where you're single forever. You know, you're having sex forever. Uh, you don't have any kids. Uh, you're respected by society. I you mean, live in
1: a where you live in a hangar in the desert and just work yeah, on an airplane yeah, exactly. off all day long.
2: Yeah. yeah, you're 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 highly committed to some sort of esoteric and but aestheticized expertise, you know. Like it's, yeah. No, seriously, it's a, or it's the life of, of. Let's be honest, it's the life of an actor. Is what he actually mm, is. Living. He's living right. the yeah. life of an actor. Yeah. True.
0: Well, that does seem like a good note to end on. <laughs> Thank you both. I don't know if we reached any grand conclusions, but we did a lot of unpacking of rich texts, and if. There's nothing else criticism can do. It can at least do that.
1: (laughs) Thank you, guys. Thank 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 you. Thank you so much. The Film Comment podcast features original music by Greg Eingy. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.